Let me invite you to turn your Bibles now again to the letter of Paul to the Romans and to that passage that we read just a few moments ago in chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're going to be continuing our studies in the book of Acts primarily on Wednesday evenings for the next while. And so today on this Communion Sunday, we turn our attention to Paul's letter to the Romans and here to the fifth chapter. And I'd like to call your attention now particularly to verses 7 and 8, where Paul, in the midst of this great gospel exposition that is the book of Romans, now makes one of the greatest statements that ever was made about the death of Jesus. Romans 5, verses 7 and and eight. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, thank you for this clear teaching powerful teaching about your love and about the death of Jesus. Pray that you would help us in the way that we listen and and I in the way that I speak today to do it justice and that you uh, would help me to speak uh, moved by the Holy Spirit with unction from on high and that we would be uh, glad that we came to hear of your son today. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God, those two words set back to back as they are here in verse 8 are two of the greatest to the most refreshing, to the most important words in the Bible and in the whole of the English language or any language for that matter. But God, we've dwelled on those two words before, haven't we? Noticing how they often mark a marvelous turning point on the pages of the scriptures. Sometimes we find ourselves reading along in our Bibles and coming face to face with the reality of how difficult things can be for the people of God at times, or of how bleak is the situation into which sin has placed us. Don't we read those kinds of things in the scriptures? But then, sometimes, like the sun coming from behind the clouds, we continue reading and we find this phrase, but God, that changes everything. For instance, Genesis 7 and 8. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. 
or Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers who sold him into slavery so long ago, but now he's second in command in Egypt, and he says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Psalm 73, 26, many of us can identify with, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or what about Acts 2, 22-24? Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Just one more, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. But God, those two words have a noble history in the pages of the Bible, so often contrasting the difficulty we can see with our own eyes and frequently that we have created with our own behavior, contrasting that with the hope and the reality of the power and the mercy of a God who is not bound by our circumstances nor even by our sins. Sometimes in the Bible and in life, everything seems forlorn and overwhelming and impossible but God. That's often how those two splendid words come to us in the pages of Scripture. And maybe they need to come that way to some of us this morning. Maybe some of us this very day need to embrace a but God theology as we look out on the gray clouds of our current circumstances. You may not be able to see a way forward in your life or in this particular problem that you're facing, but God... As I say, that's often how these two words come to us when we open our Bibles, contrasting our circumstances with our God. But here in Romans 5, 7 and 8, the contrast is slightly different. In these two verses, the contrast is not so much between God and our circumstances, but between God and ourselves. Between God and us. We human beings can... Paul says in verse 7, sometimes love in ways that are very beautiful. But God demonstrates his own love, verse 8, even far more beautifully than we do. Isn't that the contrast that's being made in verses 7 and 8? There are, Paul says, some occasions when one human being might willingly, deliberately, calculatedly, lay down his or her life for another human being. They are rare occasions, but they do exist, don't they? 
A parent would do it for a child, right? A husband ought to do it for his wife, Paul says in another place. Sometimes a brother or a sister or a really good friend would knowingly give his life for another person. Soldiers do it for their comrades on the field of battle. Sadly, we've heard stories of school teachers put in a position to do it for their students. Sometimes human beings do give their life for other human beings, don't they? And every time we hear of such a sacrifice or read about it on the news, it's moving, isn't it? And it should be. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus said. And Paul, in verse 7, is not downplaying that, I don't think. It's right and it's praiseworthy. It's a reflection of the image of God in man. When we hear of a man or a woman who willingly gives their life for another person. But it's not every day, Paul says in verse 7, that we find that kind of story, that kind of commitment and that kind of love. And on the occasions when we do find it, it's usually the case that the person who's willing to die for another human being is doing so for someone that they think well of. Someone that they get along with. Someone who is righteous and good in their sight. Someone who's worthy of the sacrifice. A comrade in battle or on a dangerous job site. A beloved family member. A defenseless woman or child, perhaps. And so when we hear these kinds of stories, that doesn't in any way diminish our admiration, of course, but we're not usually surprised by the willingness that someone had to sacrifice when we consider the position of the person that they were giving their life for. I mean, it's not like we're reading about a bank teller stepping in front of the security guard's bullet to save the life of the bank robber as he hurries out the front door with a sack of stolen money, right? That's not usually the story. It's usually the security guard standing between the bank robber and the innocent teller whom everybody loves and who has three children at home, right? People die for innocent bank tellers, not for bank robbers, right? On those rare occasions when one human being gives their life for another, it's almost never for the dirty, rotten scoundrel that one loves and dies for. Such is human love. We die for those who are in the right. We die for those whom we think well of, and we should. And Paul does not criticize us for that. But what he does do is to show how God's love is even greater than the most beautiful of human sacrifices. That's the power of the but God at the beginning of verse 8. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Human love can be amazing and wonderful and jaw-dropping sometimes. But the love of God, he says, is even beyond the greatest love that mankind displays because God doesn't just love God wasn't just willing to become flesh and lay down his life for the righteous and the good or the innocent. Christ did not simply love and give himself up for his comrades or for some bystanders or for those who loved him first or those who seemed worthy of such a sacrifice. No, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ in the bank 
imagery died for the bank robber, not just the teller and the security guard and the innocent folks standing in line. He died for them all, but he died even for the sinner. While we were yet sinners, that's when God loved us. While we were yet sinners, that's when Christ died for us. And it's a good thing he did, isn't it? Because otherwise, we, every single one of us, would be sunk. We might be willing to die, yes, for someone who is righteous and good in our sight, verse 7. But the God who is absolutely and utterly holy, the God whose eyes are too pure to approve evil, the God who sees what we are really like down to the very thoughts and intentions of the heart, when he looks down from his holy heaven upon the sons of men, what he sees, Paul said back in Romans 3, is that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good. There is not even one. All have turned aside. So it is a grand, it is a marvelous, it is a very necessary thing, I say, that God's love is even greater than the most sacrificial human love. Because if God had sent his son only for those who were worthy of such a commitment, if Christ had laid down his life only for the righteous and the good, then he'd never have laid down his life at all. For there is none righteous and there is none who does good. But that's not the storyline of the Bible, is it? No, the storyline of the Bible is not that perhaps for the good man Christ would dare even to die. The story of the Bible is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus befriended tax collectors. Jesus befriended prostitutes. And he befriends people like you and like me. He died for us while we were still in that state with the sack of money in our hands we're honest with ourselves and if the spirit of God is living in us we've begun to glimpse just how much that is ugly resides within our souls we're not even what we should be outwardly are we but if what is inside could be seen by the world and understood for what it was there wouldn't be too many people who would be willing to die for us But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while he knew about the mess inside of our souls, while he knew about the selfishness and the coveting and the pride and the lust and the bitterness, while he saw the fights at home and the history on the web browser and the stuff that we stole, while he heard the lies that we told and the gossip on the telephone and the prayers we didn't pray, while we were yet sinners, that is when Christ died for us. Think of that the next time you see one of those stories on the news about a teacher shielding her students from a gunman or a parent jumping in front of a car to save the life of her child or a soldier diving on a grenade to shield his mates. Wonder at their sacrifice. Marvel that people are willing to do that for other people. Let the tears flow freely and thank God for such amazing love and resolve to imitate it should you have occasion to do so. But then, beyond that, say for yourself, Jesus did that too. And he did it for me with all my sin. Not because I was innocent. Not because I was righteous or good. He did it in spite of the fact that I wasn't. It would almost be too good to be true, wouldn't it, if it weren't right here on the page in front of us in black and white? People don't love, and they certainly don't die for the scoundrels. But God is not like us. 
One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Have you allowed yourself really to believe that? Have you let it sink in that God is not waiting for you to fix yourself? Or for you to get your act together. Or for you to become righteous or good or worthy before you can be a candidate for his love. If that were the kind of God with whom we had to do, then Jesus would still be sitting in heaven with no nail prints in his hands and feet. And in fact, with no hands and feet at all. Christ would never have taken on flesh. He would never have laid in that manger. He would never have lived all those years without sin. He would never have hung on that cross if God were waiting for you to get it together to deserve his love. No, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ came. While we were yet sinners, Christ lived without sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I ask again, if you've ever allowed yourself to believe that, if you've been able to come to Jesus, sins and all, and believe that God loves you, and believe that Jesus' death is enough to pay off your sin debt and to make you right with God, it is enough. But have you believed it? And if not, would you do so today? Would you run to this God who loves sinners? Would you run to this Jesus who died for them? Would you believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved even today? And let me ask also, if you are saved, if you are a Christian already, if you have come to this Jesus trusting him to save you from your sins, Are you still today allowing yourself to believe the almost unbelievable words of Romans 5, 8? Do you still, when you stumble into sin, when you're reminded painfully of just how undeserving you really are, do you still believe and bank on and find hope in the fact that you needn't be deserving in order for God to love you? That's what this verse teaches, isn't it? And we have... To live on this truth every single day, don't we? Because we keep sinning every single day. And it's easy for the devil to use our continued sin, among many other foul purposes, it's easy for him to use it to keep us from believing that we're really loved by God. It's easy for us to almost begin to tell ourselves that, well, yes, we were saved initially. We were loved by God initially while we were yet sinners. But now as Christians, we ought no longer be yet sinners. And if we are, if we're still struggling with the old nature, then God is probably pretty disappointed in us. And maybe we're going to have to do a great deal better in order to regain the affection that he once had toward us. And we might not say that in so many words, and we might be disturbed if someone were to preach that way from the pulpit, but practically, it's easy to live that way, isn't it? As though, yes, at initial salvation we were loved in spite of ourselves, but now that we know a little better, we kind of need to earn our keep. Some of you may be living under just such a gray cloud even now, constantly feeling that God is disappointed with you. Because as you've gone on in the Christian life, you've seen more and more of what sin really is. And you've learned more and more of what godliness truly looks like. And therefore, you've realized more and more how much sin still resides within you. And how poorly you stack up against God's holy standards. And how little you deserve 
that God should love you and call you his child. And those are good and necessary discoveries that every growing Christian must make. But sometimes as we make them, sometimes as we become more aware of just how much gunk is really in our souls, we begin to think twice about how much God must actually love us. We begin to say to ourselves things like, boy, God must really be disappointed with me now. I ought to be way beyond where I am. I ought to be way past that sin by now. God must really find it hard to put up with me, yet a sinner like I am. I've got a lot of nerve still praying and asking him to bless me when I keep failing like this. I'm so unlovable. Do you ever feel like that? I do. And when I do, I must remember Romans 5.8. I must remember that it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. I must remind myself that it was precisely in a sinful condition that God found me to begin with. And that it was precisely in that condition that he loved me and gave his son to die for me. And if he loved me then, when not one ounce of my sanctification had begun, then surely he loves me now, even though I'm still a long way from being what I should be. Because God's love was never predicated on how well you or I performed. That's what Romans 5.8 teaches us. God's love was never predicated, was never based on, was never contingent upon how you or I performed. And if it wasn't, then God still loves you, Christian, even in the midst of your current poor performance. Christ's death still applies to today's sins as much as to those you committed before you were ever saved. And you need not earn his love today any more than you did when you first believed. And consider this as well. God always knew, didn't he, how you would turn out? God always knew how often and miserably you and I would fail to obey him and love him, right? God knew these things way back when he first brought you to faith, while you were yet a sinner. Indeed, God knew them even on the day that you were born. He knew them, in fact, 2,000 years ago when Christ died for you. And God knew, even in eternity past, what sins you would be committing in November of 2013. Isn't that amazing and sobering? And yet he loved you then even though he knew about your future sins. And he ordained Jesus to die for you then, even though he knew what sort of person you turn out to be. And if he loved you then and gave his son to die for the failures that he knew lay ahead in your life, then he's not surprised that they've now come to fruition. He's not surprised by your current struggles and sins. And though he doesn't approve of them, he's already committed to love you in spite of them. And so there's no reason for him to change his mind about you now, as if it were possible for God to change his mind. You are today exactly the kind of person that God always knew that you would be. And however messed up that may be, God sent his son to die for you anyway. He loves you anyway while you were yet a sinner. And he still loves you while you're still yet a sinner. And the blood of Jesus, his son, still cleanses us from all sin. And if we confess our sins, he is still faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Because God's love was never dependent upon how you or I performed. Not in our lost condition, not in eternity past, and not today either. Now don't mishear me when I say that God's love is not dependent on how you or I perform. I'm not for a moment saying that it doesn't therefore matter what we do. I'm not for a moment minimizing sin or saying that it has no effect on our relationship with God. No, if we truly know Christ, we ought to gradually grow beyond many of our sin habits. We ought to be more like Jesus now than when we first believed. We ought all to be more like Jesus than we actually are. And though our sins are covered by Christ's blood, they're still ugly. And they still have consequences. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, can't we? We can grieve the heart of our Heavenly Father. We do sometimes bring His discipline down upon our backsides. And we do sometimes wander from Him and love Him less than we once did. All of these are the sad effects of our sin. And they do affect our fellowship with God. But the point this morning is that none of them means that our Father loves us any less. A father can be grieved by the behavior of his children and still love them more than anything in the world, can he not? And if that is true of earthly fathers, and how much more of our father who's in heaven? And if this father should discipline us because of our sin, that's no sign that we've lost his love, is it? No, the book of Hebrews reminds us that it's precisely because God loves us that he disciplines us. He's molding our character thereby and doing us good. And though we may sometimes not love God the way we ought or the way we once did, his love for us never fails. In fact, in this connection, it may be helpful to notice that the word demonstrates in verse 8 is in the present tense. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amber Mathenia Some of you knew Amber not long before she went to be with the Lord was giving her testimony at her home church in Mississippi. And this present tense verb was one of the things she pointed out that day. Romans 5.8, she said, doesn't say that Jesus' death merely demonstrated God's love, past tense, but the cross demonstrates God's love to us even today. Now, the application that she made from that, and it's a good one, is that we don't need to look for some other sign today that God loves us. It's not that God demonstrated his love, demonstrated his love that one time at the cross, but that now we need him to keep demonstrating it in other ways in our current circumstances. Now, he does do that, doesn't he? He does often demonstrate his love in our current circumstances, but her point was, even if he didn't, we would still know that God loves us because of the fact that Christ died for us and that that death still demonstrates, present tense, today, that God loves us. And I say further that if the death of Christ demonstrates God's love for us, present tense, if the death of Christ, which happened so long ago, is still demonstrating God's love for us, then God must still love us in the present tense even though we've kept sinning in the present tense and will sadly continue to do so in the future. 
One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just consider the weight of each of those last four words. Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, promised all the way back in Genesis 3, prophesied and foreshadowed and awaited all throughout the Old Testament. Long expected Jesus finally came and he died. Died on a cross. Died with nails driven in his hands and feet. Died with a crown of thorns jammed down onto his brow. Died with furrows carved into his back, bleeding and suffocating and forsaken and alone. For, on behalf of, in the place of, bearing the guilt of, absorbing the punishment due to, as a substitute for us. Us. Us? Christ died for us? The anointed of God came into the world and did all that suffering for us? For me? I wouldn't die for me, knowing what I know about myself. But that's just the point of these two magnificent verses, isn't it? Jesus has done the most surprising thing of all. The Heavenly Father has done the most amazing thing of all. The Father has loved and Christ has died, not for the good, not for the righteous, not for the innocent, not for the bystanders, not for the well-liked, not for the deserving, not for the worthy. Christ has died and the Father has loved those who spent their lives forgetting God, ignoring God, failing to honor Him as God or give thanks, breaking His laws, fumbling the opportunities that He's given to us neglecting his word, being satisfied without prayer, stumbling in so many ways, sometimes repeatedly into the same ditches. The Father has loved and Christ has died, in short, for us. Needy, helpless, sinful, ungodly, unworthy, can't get our acts together, can't get out of our own way, us. God loves us. Christ died for us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.